Well, good morning. Am I on? There we go. I think um, we're continuing in our series on First Corinthians this morning. So I'd invite you to turn your Bibles there. And uh, if you have a ribbon or something to mark that passage in First Corinthians with, I would encourage you to do that as well. Um, because we're going to also turn this morning into Zechariah. And I'm going to actually begin with some thoughts around Zechariah, which may feel a little bit unusual, but I think it'll, I, I, I trust it'll make sense. Um, and as the Lord was just working in my, my thoughts and uh, heart about this message this morning, um, it, it just really kind of led to that being a, a key passage. And so um, I want to, uh, if you're not familiar with where Zechariah is, don't worry, it's hard to find. It's in the Minor Prophets. So like find Matthew and then go back just a couple of books. Um, you have Malachi and then Zechariah's right there. And we'll be in Zechariah chapter 12 to start with. Um, did that make sense? So if you get to Matthew, go back a little bit, Malachi, and then Zechariah's right before that chapter 12. Um, I, uh, I think part of why I... I landed in Zechariah is for a couple of reasons. Um, one, Kevin King and I have been working through a book. We, I say we've been. We're working through it to have some discussion here shortly. Um, right, Kevin? Some, we haven't scheduled the time yet, but we're going we're to do that. I guess we're accountable now to everybody in the church to get that done, maybe even after church today. Um, but it's, it's the book that we're working through is called A Treatise of the Dominion of Sin and Grace. Um, it's by a Puritan named John Owen. And if you're familiar with John Owen, um, he writes, uh, uh, he's written a ton. It's like, I think there's six volumes that are like this big all together on Hebrews. And then he's got a ton of other treatises on the, uh, the, the truth of Scripture is what it would boil down to. And his, his writing is just phenomenal, uh, if you can get through the puritanical aspects of it. Um, but it's, it's, this one is a very interesting read because he actually couples his uh, work on mortification and sin with some ideas here and relates those to how we operate in grace with Christ and salvation. And so it's a little bit different than just his focus on the mortification of sin. I've really appreciated uh, the work. And, and part of it, what I was reading this last week in preparation uh, for Kevin and my discussion, but then let me into this, is there were some parallel thoughts that I started seeing in the passage uh, that Owen was talking about, as well as what we're reading here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And it's pre uh, predominantly, it had to do with this idea that if we don't um, mortify our sin in a daily routine of exercising faith in Christ, then we're missing out on what it means to operate in the grace of Christ as well. And because we, we certainly, as and, and he's coming from the perspective, obviously, of believers. Now, he's challenging a lot of stuff. I don't want to get deep in the weeds there, but for us as believers, part of our desire to mortify the deeds of the flesh, and, and simply what mortify means, I ought to clarify that, is to this, just put it to death, that we would look at our sin and we would be so unsatisfied with our sin that we would say, I don't want that anymore to be part of my life. I want to put that to death, to do the things that in self-discipline and those things, and depend upon the grace of Christ. That's what I I appreciate about him. Uh, he really emphasizes that here. And then what he also says is so important, is that part of our desire to mortify the deeds of the flesh is that we, it, it begins with, if you will, a godly sorrow over sin. And, and I don't know about you, 
But I think that when I, I look at the problem and the complexity of sin in our lives, the, the truth is what we, we really try to do with sin is we try to justify it. We, we had several books written in the last couple of decades. Um, Jerry Bridges w- wrote one called Respectable Sin, I think is the title of it, where, where we try to minimize the, the real gravity of sin and we, we justify it in such a way that it's not such a big deal. And Owen flips that upside down. He, he says if we don't have a godly sorrow and we, if we don't have a mournful spirit over our sinfulness, then we really don't depend upon grace. And, and so I think that's partial, partially what we see in the book of Zechariah. And then I see, I see it again here in 1 Corinthians as Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And remember, what is the church of Corinth really dealing with? If you remember f- from the early context, the church is in some deeply rooted sin. There, there's rebellion and there's compromise that's being made, some of it due to the, the culture that they're coming out of because of the Greek um, emphases on uh, just worldliness, and some of it has to do with Corinth itself and the worship of Greek gods and goddesses who are dealing with sinful things, temple prostitution and the like. It's just gross stuff. But the church is not mourning over that sorrow. They're actually embracing ungodliness. And, and their, their, their uh, moral fiber is being compromised because they are not mourning over sinfulness and dependent upon Christ. So with all that kind of contextually where I'm coming from this morning, I want us to look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I think this is such a, an interesting passage um, and let me give you just a bit of context about Zechariah. So this is, again, one of the minor prophets. He's writing in the period after uh, the, the Israelites have returned from Babylonian captivity. So you think uh, specifically about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that deal with those things. Nehemiah comes in and he's dealing with the uh, building of the walls around Jerusalem to shore those up. Ezra's dealing with some of the same kind of ideas. They're focused in on trying to establish the temple worship again, so they've got to rebuild the temple. All of these things are happening. And so Zechariah comes in, and this prophecy occurs about 16 years after those ideas uh, or the, the context of around Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's some struggles that the, the Israelites have been in. And so he's confronting the Israelites about their uh, lack of follow-through in completing the work that God's called them to do. So we're picking up in the middle of this, and I think it's important just to, to, to remember that context, and we're, we're going to look back at it a little bit more in a few minutes. But he says this in verse 10. He says, Zechariah prophesies, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Here, here's what Zechariah's getting at. He's prophesying about the one who's going to be pierced that's going to be, bring grace and mercy for Israel, for, for the, the, the way they've uh, transgressed against God, the way they've fallen short, and they are to do what when they consider the one who's pierced? The, the Savior, the Redeemer. They're to mourn over him. Did you get that? As one mourns for the loss of an only child. It's this seriousness. And why would they mourn over the one pierced? Because he paid the penalty for their sins. So I, I don't know about you, but I, I share this when I share my testimony consistently 
um, when I came to Christ as a 20-year-old, part of the, the disruption in my peace and my, uh, my, my discomfort, if you will, or, or comfortability with sin was that I recognized that it was my sin that Christ paid the penalty for. And before that, I knew those facts, but there was not a grief over that. There was not a sorrow that was produced in me because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was just like a matter of fact. I checked it off like I know that, but there was not a sincerity and appreciation and a conviction that, that my sin is what Christ paid the penalty for. And I, when I read this in Zechariah, and I was thinking through what John Owen said, and as we look at 1 Corinthians, that concept or that idea came flooding back to me. And, and especially as I look at the world that we live in, and, and you can see this yourself, I'm sure if you take stock of anything, sin is minimized. We, we live in a day and age where every excuse for sin is made so that we don't have to be transformed by the grace of God. We try to justify it. We try to minimize it. We try to think it's respectable. We compare our sin to others, and there's no sorrow over it. Or if there is, it's very little. And, and we just try to, to move around and migrate so we don't experience what? The natural consequences to our sin. We just do everything we can to avoid those things. And, and in some circles, the truth is, sin is even magnified. And, and that's a more dangerous place. But for us as a church... I think we have the responsibility to come back and see how does God address our sin? What is a godly response to sin? And a, a good and right understanding of the grace poured out to us. So when we think about um, this idea, and I, I want to come back to this real quickly, what I appreciate about John Owen marking this sorrow of sin uh, with this like the sensitivity of the heart instead of the hardening of the heart, when we are sorrowful over our sin, it produces a godly humility in us. And, and again, we need, as believers, as followers of Christ, we have to have a godly humility to recognize our sin, to be sorrowful about it, to mortify the, the sin so that we operate in righteousness and holiness with the Lord so our obedience to Him is honored because of the grace that's poured out. That's a lot in there. But that's such a, an economy that God has established in our dealing with our sin and walking in obedience with Him. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 12. And now, I, if you have that ribbon, um, you might want to throw it in, Zechariah. We'll be back there in just a minute. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want to read verses 1 through 16. I know this is a big block of Scripture. And I, even as I was like reviewing notes this morning, I was like, the, the unfortunate thing is we do expositional teaching, but it oftentimes in blocks, we're not like a, a MacArthur or, or some others that just take a small passage and unpack it. So there's things that are going to be kind of passed over a little bit this morning. And I don't apologize for that. I don't say I regret it. Um, so th this is also where my encouragement is unpack this more. Take, take these passages home on a Sunday afternoon or through the week. Meditate back on passages and think through things that the Lord may not have let us have time to deal with in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. So let's read 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 16. And when I came to you, brothers, uh, wait, I'm sorry, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Let me stop there real quickly. Remember, 
Paul is addressing this culture that's a predominantly Greek culture where rhetoric and all the Greek uh, ideals have been elevated. And here he's saying, I didn't come with those accolades. I, I didn't approach you with those kind of credentials. I just did it in humility. I, I, I want you to understand that th- the reason I did this in this manner is because it elevates the power of God, not his skills. That, that's what he's getting at as he sets this context. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now remember, that looks back to what we talked about last week as we looked at the power of the cross and the message of the cross of Christ. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What an incredible qualification. I've shared this, and I I can't remember. Somebody picked it up recently and shared it, but I I often have said, my job in sharing my faith is not to convince someone about their need to trust Christ. My responsibility is to share the Scripture, its truth, so that they can understand that, obviously, but I am not to convince them. Because if I convince them, what's going to happen when someone else comes along and talks to them in, in a different angle? They can convince them otherwise. My responsibility is to present that information of the Scripture, the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, so that who convinces them? The Holy Spirit. And so you, I hear that language in Paul's statement here that he said in verse 3, or, and we'll read 4 again, and I was with you in weakness and in fear with, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. His focus on t- sharing the hope of the gospel was so that the spirit would move. So our responsibility is simply to present the scripture, share the truth, trust the Holy Spirit that is moving in their lives so that when we ask them wh- how will they respond to the message of the cross, that they would respond in repentance and faith because the Holy Spirit has convicted them because he is the one who has ultimate power in spiritual matters. And we need to trust him. Let's continue verse 5. That your faith may not or might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Wow. So, so many things that, that could be unpacked here. But, but I want to focus in on a, a few key ideas. And, and I've mentioned a couple of them already, but I, I want to make sure that I highlight these again according to the text in 1 Corinthians. So the first is this, is that Paul is focused predominantly on Jesus Christ crucified. What is the power of God for salvation? It's Christ crucified. Christ crucified. If we miss that, if we elevate anything else other than Christ crucified, the message of the gospel is compromised. Now, I, I want to make this clear because I think we're, we're setting a little bit of a tone or seeing Paul set the tone for things that are to come. Because when we are dealing with a lot of churches today, especially churches that come from a charismatic or pen, Pentecostal uh, background or that's their doctrinal stance, what is their tendency to, uh, or what is the idea that they tend to elevate um, in their churches? It's the Holy Spirit. The works of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. We're here in 1 Corinthians, one of the predominant places that the gifts are listed, and Paul addresses what the work of the Spirit is. But what does he set the context for at the outset of this book? The Spirit and the power of the Spirit is to do what? It's to emphasize Christ and Him crucified. So I, I'm not saying that those churches or members of those churches are not brothers and sisters in Christ, but I do think that theologically they're missing a key element by emphasizing the wrong thing, and that is the work of the Spirit over and against the power of the cross. Because Paul has again and again said the power of salvation, the key to our faith, the, the point of grace being ministered to us is what? The cross of Christ. And we don't need to compromise that in any way. And we're going to look at spiritual gifts and how the Holy Spirit works in us in a few weeks as we get there. But we need to remember that Christ crucified is the power of the gospel. And that's who and what the Holy Spirit points to. And we, we see that in verses 3 and 4. We've read those a couple times. But I, I want you to go back to this. The two key elements that Paul is mentioning here is this. And, and, so, and, and I want you to understand this. That word that there. In English, it may seem very simple or, or maybe lackluster. We might just browse over that really quickly. But in the Greek, that word there is the, the little uh, conjunction henna, which means it's a purpose. So the purpose of what Paul's getting at right here is this, that we would understand that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but what? In the power of God. In the power of the Spirit. In the work of God, because that's what verse, let, let's go back and read these together. In verse 4, it says, in the, the power, in plausible wisdom of, uh, not in the plausible words of wisdom of man, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and His power. And then in verse 5, at the end of it, it says, in the power of God. So all of what Paul's getting at is our faith rests in the power of God at work as He's revealing it through the Spirit, emphasizing the cross of Christ. That's where our faith is. And, and again, we, we talked about this again and again as a church body, and I, th I think this is such an important thing that I don't want to overlook uh, this this morning. Faith is not about what I can muster. Faith is not how much I can get my faith strengthened. Faith is about who or what? The object of our faith. So again, I think Paul's emphasizing that here. 
when we are trusting Christ rightly and our faith is upon Him and we learn and understand Him more, our faith is strengthened. That, that's such a key. It's not about how much I can do. It's about knowing Christ and knowing the power of the gospel well and trusting Him in all things and seeing the power of the cross worked out in my life as I respond humbly and grieve over my sin so that I might see the grace of Christ transforming me according to His power. Isn't that good stuff? So I, I think we can easily overlook that. So let me, uh, let's, let's look at verses 8 and 14 now. Because I think this goes back to Zechariah and part of this idea of the, the godly humility and the sorrow and mourning over our sin. In verse 8 and 14, Paul actually addresses kind of two groups, if you will. The rulers of the age and then the, these, um, what he calls um, in verse 14 the natural person. The, they're two different groups where they uh, are kind of qualified by the same attitude or perspective. And that perspective or attitude is this. They don't feel like they need godly wisdom. They, they operate apart from the truth and the hope of the gospel, and therefore they enter into criticism and sin of godly things. So in verse 8, let's, let's, let's look what happens here. He said, Paul says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, the hope of the gospel, the, the importance of the cross. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, you think about the rulers of the age that, that ignored the, uh, their sinfulness and their need for Christ. That's almost exactly what Zechariah was also emphasizing, that that ungodly approach had made them hard in their hearts to the things of God. And so they pierced that, the one, the, 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 the Redeemer, but they didn't understand what the point of that was. And look at verse 14. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Folks, if you understand the things of God, don't get proud and haughty. Don't, don't think, well, I'm better than the lost people or the natural person. Be humble that God has revealed that to you by the power of His Spirit, that you can grieve over your sin and respond to the grace of God. That's, that's where our hope lies. Not in our prideful thinking or our thinking that we have great wisdom. It is just simply that the Holy Spirit has revealed those things to us and convicted us of those things. Because otherwise, we would be left in our own natural state. We would be just like the rulers of this age who have crucified God, or Christ, and have done that out of a callousness because we haven't recognized really what the purpose is. Now, now let me say this too, and I want to make sure this is clear. Because we could easily look and go, well, wait a second, Matt. When you're saying this, had, had the rulers had more wisdom, would Christ not have been crucified? Right? Let me say this. There's a sovereign providential plan that God had in place for Christ to be crucified. And those rulers had to be darkened and hardened in their hearts for that to happen. I want you to follow me with this for just a moment. And we're going to see how both God in his sovereignty and then in his uh, response to man and his man's responsibility work together. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 28, I'm sorry, 27 and 28. Acts 4, 27 and 28. And, and just to give you just a smidge of context, this is uh, coming in the, the context of Peter and John 
uh, standing before a council d- d- defending the faith, and then their release and giving an answer for the, the hope that they possess. And, and so here's what happens. In verse 27 we read, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom he anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So it's all nations. Like you get this picture, it's all nations, okay? The rulers, the Jews, the, the, um, the Gentiles there, everyone's responsible. And then in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, so it's not like God just said, hey, let me just set things out and sit back and, like, the deist, y'all understand what deism is? It's this idea that there's a God that exists in heaven, but he just kind of spun the world into motion. He sits back and lets nothing happen, or, or lets everything happen, and he's not involved, okay? So, so here you get the exact opposite picture of what God has done and how he operates. It's that he's put things into motion, and according to his predestined plan, he has worked in such a way that the rulers, the Gentiles, all the Jews, everyone is accountable for the, the crucifixion of Christ. And so when you hear my testimony and you hear my own understanding that it's my sin that put Christ on the cross, I'm coming into this point and recognizing that Christ certainly paid the penalty for all sin, mine included, and I am just as responsible for him being on that cross as anyone else, as as much as Pontius Pilate or Herod or any other religious man of that time or the crowds that were saying crucify him, crucify him, the crowds that wanted Barabbas changed out for Jesus... I'm just as guilty. And there's a, in God's providential plan, there is that human responsibility as well. He planned it, and then we are responsible for it as well. We've got to find a good balance of those things in how God works in his economy of salvation throughout history, even to today, even into the future. Does that make sense? So, so when we see what Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, we need to recognize these truths out of Acts as well. That the God has perfectly planned the, the point of salvation through the cross of Christ, and we can find redemption through him. Now, let's go back to Zechariah 4. Um, I know I'm kind of hopping around, but I think this will be some good truths, because I think this is where, when we think about um, how God works and the promise that he gives, I, I think this is a point for us to recognize our humility, our sorrow over sin, and our our call of obedience to operate in a a way that honors the Lord. So in Zechariah 4, verses 6 through 14, we're going to read this together. And um, as we read this, let me me set this up just a little bit. There's going to be two men that are introduced in this passage. One is Zerubbabel, who is um, a leader in Israel who is responsible for building the temple. The other is Joshua. This is not the Joshua who followed after Moses and was leading the Israelites into the promised land. This Joshua is actually a Joshua here in the the time of uh, post-Nehemiah, about 16 years after, who is to be a high priest, okay? So that'll set these guys up just a little bit. So let's pick up in verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How many of y'all have heard that verse? Not by might, not by spirit. But uh, by my spirit, uh, but by my spirit, says the Lord of Hosts. Okay, it's probably the most famous passage out of Zechariah. So here's here's why I'm cluing in or keying in on this, because as we think about what Paul's written in First Corinthians two about the power of the Spirit, 
it comes back to what God was doing even in the book of Zechariah, throughout the history, how he's operated consistently. I want us to see how men have been transformed by the power of God's grace historically that I think Paul's also cluing in on about the power and the work of the Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians. So let's read, pick back up at verse 6 again. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive, tree, olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know that these are, who, what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, I, I know Joshua is not mentioned there. He's mentioned earlier. But the two at the end are Zerubbabel and Joshua. And I'm not going to unpack all the things of the prophecy. But I think there's some clear things that the Lord is saying here that I, I want to draw out from the text that I think are very uh, practical for us today. And the first of these is um, found in, in verse... Um, let me make sure I get it right. In verse 7. Where the Lord, where the, the prophecy says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring down that top stone. So here's, here's what I was, came across and was thinking. First of all, I want you to recognize, when we're thinking about the power of God, the first thing that God's uh, power does through the work of the Spirit, He does this. He conquers the greatest obstacles. And I'm going to jump ahead for just a minute. I want you to think through practical application that would normally come at the end of the message. What are the great obstacles in your life? I've listed a couple. Discouragement. Financial crisis. Past failures. Addiction. Criticism. Misplaced guilt from your past. Maybe it's the, the mountain of doubt about your future. That's just a few. We could list thousands of obstacles that we feel are great mountains. But the truth is, and the hope of the gospel is this, because of the power of the Spirit of God, those things are not obstacles. Because of God's grace, He will bring healing to every one of those obstacles in some way. Now, it may not be in this temporal world. I, I'll give you that. Because we will all face obstacles that may just never be overcome. Or we'll see them repeated, even as we gain traction to, to stand firm against those in the power of the Spirit. We may just need to be sanctified again and again and again in areas. But folks, I want to assure you, the Holy Spirit and His power works to remove those obstacles. I, I, was, uh, I, I read this statement, I thought it was great. I'm going to just repeat it. It says, what are you great mountains? Jesus is greater, and His Spirit who indwells me possesses greater power than any mountain. That's how we ought to live. The second one that we, we need to consider, the second practical uh, idea is this. God's Spirit 
overcomes the smallest beginnings. In verse 9, let's look back there. God's Spirit overcomes the smallest beginnings. The hands, in verse 9 it says, The hands of Zerubbabel had laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts sent me. So here's what happened. The foundation of the temple had been established, but they had never built the temple. For some reason, the opponents of the, the, the nation of Israel had become critical of them, and they stopped the work. Now, I was thinking about this. Um, how many of y'all, y'all, does anybody watch Homestead Rescue? I get in these dumb shows and talk about them all the time. Judd, you do? You like it? It's okay. Yeah. It's kind of weird. It's okay. Can you watch it? Did I see your hand go up? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Yeah. Okay, it's just a, a silly show. But here, here's one of the things I like about Homestead Rescue. They're always dealing with something on a homestead that, that has a, a small success, but they're trying to build on it. And I was thinking about this idea of the foundation of the temple being established, but it being a, a seemingly small beginning. And then what Zerubbabel and others would have to come in and do, just like what they do in Homestead Rescue, they're taking the small things and they're, they're like rescuing what was a struggling place for the, these families. Well, how many of you routinely inspect the foundation of your house? I don't. I think about it. But, but there's times I get under and do something to check on something. But it, that is not like a monthly thing like changing out the air filter in my home. Okay? And, and here's my point. I think a lot of times we think that the foundation and that work is just a small piece of everything that happens. But the truth is, if the foundation is poor, or it crumbles, or there's a, a weakness, a structural issue, what happens with the rest of the house? It goes down. It's going to fail. And, and so what we need to remember here is though there may be things in your life that you have done foundationally, and maybe they've not followed through, like you've not been able to see them to fruition, the Lord is still good and He's still working to take those small beginnings and do great things. Folks, I'll be honest, I think that's part of what we're addressing as a church together. That we have had some experience where we've had to come back um, in our church life and consider the foundations of our ministry. That's why we're in a season of revitalization right now that started really back last April. And we've been working on strategies and plans to bring in the revitalization because the foundation, though it's been really good in some ways, we've also sent some, hey, there, there's some things that we need to do to patch that and things that we need to do to, to build on top of other things that are good. And it's an okay thing. Why? It's actually better than an okay thing. It's a really good and great thing. Why? Because we recognize how we need to depend upon God's grace and that He is still favorable in every way for us. And when we respond like I think we did well and rightly, with brokenness in the, the spring of last year. And I want to remind you of this. In the couple of meetings that we had with Dr. Rob Burdett, we had 100% of our church in those two meetings. To, for him to hold up the mirror to us about how are we doing with our church health. Folks, I, I know we're a smaller body, but it's still, how often does 100% of the church participate in something? I, I, I couldn't tell you the last time. And, and for us... It propelled us through godly humility, a sorrow over our state, and, and that, that what we had, were like struggling with. And as we had the church health team meet and we set new standards, we rejoiced in those things and we got around those things and we're seeing the fruit of God's power and the, the work of the Spirit in our lives. 
you had people, adults. Like uh, When I say people coming to faith, I want to clarify that because it's adults and kids alike. It's huge when adults come to faith. When, when 28, 30-year-old people are recognizing the need for Christ. That is not a small thing. Because you know that like 90, for statistics are 95% of people come to faith before age 18. Something like that. So it's huge, tremendous that God has given us that blessing. And so we are recognizing through this godly sorrow, the small beginnings, God is still doing a great work. And we need to champion His grace and His power in our church life and celebrate these things. And I think we're doing a good job. Don't get me wrong. But we need to continue those things and rely on the power of God's Spirit to get those things done. So can you imagine Joshua? Here's the high priest. And he walks to his priestly duty place, the temple, and all he has is a foundation year after year after year. How discouraging. But here's God's promise. The temple will be built. Ministry will be restored. There's hope for the future. There's hope for you personally. and There's hope for the people as he's ministering to them. Folks, that is a key for us. Where are the small beginnings? Maybe personally in your life. Maybe in it for us as a church. Maybe corporately in some other ways, uh, in a grow group or some other things. Where is it that you need to operate and recognize that God's Spirit is empowering you for great tasks ahead? Um, third one. Third one. I, and I think this is a key. And, and I hope this really encourages all of you as well. This third point is that God's Spirit uses the unlikeliest people. And we see that in verses uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 4 again. It says, let me just read this. It says, he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord on, of the whole earth. It's simply this. It doesn't matter how unlikely you are, okay, to, to, to be used of God. All you have to do is what? Be like Zerubbabel and Joshua and stand by the Lord of the whole earth. If you will walk with Christ... He will empower you for great things in ministry. It's simple. Let's look back at 1 Corinthians now, because I think this is a, a key to this. Um, in verses 12 through 16, Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understand the, understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Do you, do you hear the parallel? That, that though... In Zechariah, there was the struggles that Zerubbabel and Joshua faced. That they were unlikely people. And the truth is, every one of us is unlikely people. The truth is, that's what Paul said. That the church there, they weren't a, a bunch of people elevated in the culture. They were the lowest ranks of society at that point. They weren't the Greek rulers. They weren't those that were being elevated in the culture. They were just the simple folks. And folks, most of us are dual-income families. Most of us are probably blue collar to white collar, just lower white collar. You know, we don't have lots of doctors and lawyers in our church. I would say we reflect kind of that same principle. We're people that live in, in places where we just struggle to make it, make it by in the routines of life, if you will. 
But the truth is, as simple and as unlikely as we are in the, those kind of circumstances, if you will, that the world will look and say, they don't have a lot to offer. The, the fact is, if we'll walk with Jesus, we have tons to offer. Because His Spirit will empower us as we go. And so when I think about things that we're doing in our church life, how we're revitalizing children's ministry, when I think about what we're doing in youth ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, trail life, um, by the way, let me say this. Matt Kiter is our troop leader for Trail Life. There, how many guys, boys, do you have in the group right now, Matt? 20 boys, okay. So that's ministering to probably 15 families around that number. Um, and so that's incredible. AHG, American Heritage Girls, we're on a break right now. Our leadership, we didn't have enough leadership this spring. So we're praying, and I need to, you as a church to be praying about leadership to come back so we can have a that reestablished in the fall. That's uh, scouting ministries for boys and girls. Um, those outreaches are reaching the community. There's so many other things that, that we're seeing the Lord do in our community. I, I could just list hundreds, honestly, of these things. But what we need is we need to walk with God consistently. Let me show, show you one more thing in 1 Corinthians 2. I think this is so like encouraging to me. Look in um, verse 6. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 6, Paul makes this comment, and I don't want this to be missed by us this morning. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Folks, I'm not, I don't want to at all criticize and say we're not mature. I think we are. The goal is for us to continually or consistently be maturing in Christ. As a church, when we gather and we grow in the Word and we minister well to one another, I hope that we can be qualified like what Paul's qualifying the church at Corinth, Corinth, even though they're a struggling church. Among the mature, God reveals His wisdom. What we need is a body to commit to spiritual maturity, to walk in the Word, to walk according to the power of the Spirit, to be accountable to one another, to be engaged in grow groups. Remember our ministry strategy is gather, grow, and go. So we want you to gather here on a Sunday morning. We want you to grow and grow groups. And we want you to go and minister and serve to one another and the community. So if we will do those things well, as we are maturing, the Lord will continue to reveal wisdom to us. Now I'll confess, I need more wisdom on a daily basis. The only way I can grow in wisdom is to be engaged with the Word, the Lord, and youth. And apart from that, I will grow in folly. I will, I will like drift into that. You're no different than me. Would you please commit to being in a healthy, grow group, coming consistently to church, growing in these things, so that as we mature, the, the Lord is uh, blessing us. So, here's the challenge this morning. This is simply the challenge. I want to end with this thought and ask you these kind of, go back to these three things. How is it that the Holy Spirit is moving in you to empower you for His work? How is the Holy Spirit moving in you to empower you for His work? Are you facing any obstacles? Do you feel like you have a small beginning? Maybe you feel unlikely. How is He speaking to you about maybe one, maybe all three of those areas this morning that you just need to say, in humility, I need to come and I need to maybe confess unrepentant sin and I need to walk in the grace of God so that I find healing and hope in the midst of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know this has been, in a sense, a little bit different message than, than how I've typically approached things, but 
where I saw so many rich truths tying together that, that I think your spirit in the power of uh, in his power takes the word and and brings life to us. Lord, I, I confess myself that there's often times that I can feel discouragement or I can feel doubt and, and I, I can feel very unlikely to be used by you. But Lord, you're a great and mighty God and you take the, the weak things of the world and you use them to show and demonstrate your power. And I pray for every one of us in this place, Lord, that we would approach you with a godly sorrow over sin that we wouldn't be satisfied to make excuses over that sin, but instead, Lord, we would be broken over it and we would trust your grace and the work of your spirit and his power to shape us into godliness, to shape us in obedience, to, to lead us in intimacy with you and with one another. And Lord, if we will do those things, I can't imagine the, the end results of what you have in store for us as both individuals and a church. So Lord, I want to just be quiet for about 20 seconds or 30 seconds and just let your spirit work in each of our lives and speak to us about our need to maybe repent of sin, maybe it's to confess a, a need for you to, to work uniquely in one of these areas. Uh, so Lord, I'm just going to again be quiet and let you bless each one of us. Heavenly Father, we're, we're going to stand here in just a moment and we're going to sing the doxology. Mason's going to lead us in that. And Lord, as I'm thinking about that as the reprise of our services, it begins, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Lord, we can't do life in our own strength. It, it's a great reminder of, of how this work of your spirit is what provides us anything. So Lord, as we take a moment just to, to worship you in this form with the doxology, may it also tie back to the message. May it unite our hearts to praise you, the great God that you are. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.